0: Well, good morning, everyone. Uh, My name is Paul, and I serve as one of the pastors here. And if you've been with us in recent weeks, you know we're preaching through one of the most familiar passages in all of Scripture, a section where Jesus teaches his followers to pray what is often referred to as the Lord's Prayer. This morning, we're going to conclude that series as we reflect on the last petition, Lead Us Not Into Temptation, but deliver us from evil. And if you're like me, the end of this series has come far too fast. I have enjoyed spending time reflecting on the simplicity and the depth of how Jesus taught his followers to pray. I've enjoyed practicing and reflecting on the language of the Lord's Prayer in our gospel community gatherings. And so I think I speak for Pastor Chris and myself when I say, We want any momentum that has been captured during this season to continue in the weeks and months to come. We want people to join us for corporate prayer tomorrow night. We want gospel communities spending more time praying together. And we want families and singles and kids and members of our church being okay, clumsily learning the practice of prayer. Now, some of you may be wondering, Why are we stopping with this petition? I mean, maybe you were exposed to a tradition where the Lord's Prayer concluded with the language, for thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever, amen. Well, encountering those words in the Bible depends on what translation you read. If you read the original King James Version, it has that language. But many other translations do not. Some translations and some study Bibles then will reference that petition with a note to the effect that the oldest and most reliable manuscripts of Scripture do not include those words. Many scholars think that language was added later. And so it's not that those words are wrong to pray. In fact, that language very much reiterates earlier elements of the prayer. God is sufficient. We long for God's kingdom to come. But since that petition is not included in recovered manuscripts that are dated earlier, we're not covering that petition of the prayer. Some of you might also be wondering, hey, if we're finishing this series today, what are we preaching on next? Uh, Well, we plan to resume working through the book of 1 Corinthians, where we were much of last year. And if you were present with us at any time during that series, you know the Apostle Paul addressed some controversial issues, some hot-button issues like marriage, singleness, sex, sin, church discipline, head coverings. And the next section is certainly no different. We're going to discuss things like prophecy and speaking in tongues, issues that often serve to divide the church today. And as we do, we're we're going to learn and lean in that encountering differences. The church is not simply a place where we tolerate and accept one another. A church flourishes as we depend on one another in the presence of having a diversity of perspectives and gifts and experiences given to us by our God so join us for that series beginning next Sunday. So as we turn our attention back to the conclusion of the Lord's Prayer, while earlier petitions primarily focused us on the heavens, our Father, hallowed be thy name, the final few, thy kingdom come, give us our daily bread, forgive us our debts. They, they have in mind, they have in view earthly experience while gazing upwards to God in the heavens. This last petition, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. It has us, as we consider battles and struggles with challenging thoughts and bad behavior, it has us not only gazing upwards for protection and deliverance, but it also has in view the very pit of hell. Jesus is not describing evil in the abstract the way it is presented in the Star Wars trilogies as the dark side, or perhaps in the Marvel movies as forces generally opposed to what is good. Deliver us from evil can also be translated deliver us from the evil one. Jesus has in mind the power and prominence of a a particular evil one. Someone like Thanos or Darth Vader. For the Christian, the evil one is a figure named Satan or the devil. In this struggle, Jesus is teaching his followers to to cry out independence. As much as as each of us wants to be the hero in this battle against evil, in this battle against the evil one, I mean, we want to be Luke Skywalker, for those of you that are older. Or we want to be Rey, for those of you that are younger. Or if Marvel is your thing, we want to be Thor or Spider-Man or Black Widow or Iron Man. I mean, that's who I want to be. Jesus is teaching his followers, look to God for protection. Look to God for deliverance and rescue. Which means, in our battle with the evil one... We do not embrace self-sufficiency and self-reliance. God is the hero. His work is the source of our victory in our struggles with sin and battles against evil. So our big idea summarizes what we are longing for. The work of God in our lives. Deliverance from the devices of the devil. Now, talking about the devil can be a little weird like fantasy or fiction. I mean, Thomas gets up here and and uses names like Lucifer and the dragon, and it can make some of us uncomfortable. The reality is many people, Christians included, make errors in having a biblical understanding of the evil one. I think back to watching Saturday Night Live. There was an actor named Dana Carvey who played a character called the Church Lady, in a skit called Church Chat. Some of you know what I'm talking about. Now the church lady had quirks and, and the character was certainly not a model of Christian behavior. This was Saturday Night Live, so if you YouTube this later, be warned. <laughs> but it was interesting when the, when the church lady was confronting someone about poor decisions or bad behavior, something like this would be asked. Now who could have led you down that path? Just who could could it be? And the church lady would then dramatically drop the name Satan. And there would be this kind of laugh. That dialogue reflected how many perceive the belief of an evil one to be silly. If that's where you're at this morning, doubting the existence of an evil being named Satan, welcome. We hope you find First City Church is a place where you're free to ask questions and wrestle with doubts. But that said, because of what Scripture teaches, and because we experience so much evil in the world around us and darkness existing within us, we cannot deny the existence of an evil one. And this morning, as we explore deliverance from the devices of the devil, we hope you're able to consider what Scripture teaches about such a being. Of course, beyond silliness, the dialogue of church chat also exposed how Christians can use the devil to excuse responsibility for destructive decisions. If we do something evil, it's because the devil made us do it. We are a sort of victim. Some, therefore, attribute far too much power and too much prominence to the devil, far more than what Scripture teaches. So in teaching his followers to pray this petition, if Jesus is not teaching something obsolete, something antiquated, if he is not teaching Christians to be victims, what is he teaching? Biblical names for the devil include the destroyer, the accuser, the slanderer, the adversary, the tempter, the deceiver. These are the devices of the evil one. Many Christians today, and I I put myself in this category, while not outright denying, tend to dismiss and downplay the prominence of these devices. Theologian Richard Loveless, in, in describing how one group of Christians, evangelicals, relate to the evil one, says this. Many evangelicals are content to affirm that the devil is indeed defeated, shrinking from the notion that Christians might actually run into him in actual combat situations and advising that the wisest course is to keep one's attention on Christ and let God take care of the devil." Christians do not typically deny the devil's existence, but we don't really know what to do with the evil one. And we are prone to dismiss the power and prominence and presence of Satan. Jesus instructing his followers to pray this petition is teaching the devil is not dormant. His presence is not to be dismissed. Disciples of Jesus take the devil seriously and regularly cry out to God for deliverance from the devices of the devil. So to enter temptation means embracing the devil's devices. In particular, deceit. We affirm deceptions of truth leading us to doubt God's word, doubt God's goodness, and doubt God's provision. Perhaps the best place to see this portrayed in Scripture is one of the most ancient texts, the book of Genesis. The first two chapters of that book reveal much of what it means to be human and reveals much about God. It begins with something most scientists agree with today. The world and the universe around us, it had a beginning. But Genesis says far more than having a beginning, Creation was not an accident. Unlike other creation narratives where the earth existed because of a war or because of God's, uh, God's displeasure, Genesis 1 and 2 declare creation was the overflow of God's goodness. And human beings, while they are like the rest of creation in one sense, in another, we're very different. We're set apart because we bear God's image. You and I, every single one of us, has great intrinsic value and worth. Genesis teaches God's creation is an overflow of his goodness, and through his word, God exerts his rule and reign. His word teaches right and wrong and declares purpose and meaning. So at the conclusion of chapter 2, Man and woman are described as being naked and feeling no shame. As they trust in God's word, as they trust in God's goodness, as they trust and delight in God's provision, they experience oneness and harmony and peace with him, with one another, and with God's creation. Then in chapter 3, this evil one appears to distort trust in God's word. To distort trust in God's goodness and to distort trust in God's provision. Here's how Genesis 3 describes what happens. Now, the serpent was the most cunning of all the wild animals that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God really say you can't eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, We may eat fruit, we may eat the fruit from the trees in the garden. But about the fruit of the tree in the middle of the garden, God said, you must not eat it or touch it, or you will surely die. No, you will, not, you will not certainly die, the serpent said to the woman. In fact, God knows that when you eat it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. The woman saw that the tree was good for food and delightful to look at, and that it was desirable for obtaining wisdom so she took some of its fruit and ate it evil comes in the form of a serpent and entices eve to doubt god's word god's goodness and god's provision this is what the devices of the devil does did god really say are you sure The picture portrayed of the evil one is not directly challenging God, leading to overt rebellion, denying his existence, but instead to subtly, to subtly invite suspicion. Is his word sufficient? Is it reliable? Am I really understanding his word correctly? Entering into that temptation, Eve changes God's word. God didn't say she couldn't touch the fruit. God didn't say she couldn't eat of the tree in the middle of the garden. She revises God's word and makes it seem more restrictive. She shifts the meaning of God's word as she encounters the devices of the devil. Doubting God's word then leads to doubting God's goodness and doubting God's provision. She is drawn to focus on what she doesn't have. There are all sorts of things God has given her to delight in. Evil focuses on what is beyond that. God is not giving you enough. God is withholding from you. What he has given you is not sufficient. You need more and you can have it. This is the device of the devil. To doubt the sufficiency of what God has given us and to distrust the goodness of God. When this happens, when we come to doubt God's goodness, when we come to believe he can't be trusted, the invitation is to embrace autonomy, to embrace self-reliance, to think of ourselves as not needing God. Scripture reveals entering into a temptation that ultimately leads to sin is certainly not the devil made me do it, but instead is more like forming a partnership with the deceptions of the evil one, resulting in us rejecting the rule and reign of God, to living as though we are God, deciding what is right and deciding what is wrong. In doing so, we embrace what is pleasing to the eye and desirable to our senses. And so Eve takes the forbidden fruit. She enters into temptation and embraces the deception of the evil one. Adam then eats the fruit. He rejects God's word, God's goodness, and God's provision. How he got there is a little different. In God's interaction with Adam after eating the fruit, the text says this in verse 17. And he said to the man, because you listened to your wife and ate, free, and ate from the tree about which I commanded you, do not eat from it. Adam is held accountable for listening to the voice of Eve. That's how we got there. We can hear that dialogue, right? That person you love, she's not listening to God's voice. She rejected his rule and reign. It looks like she is experiencing something good and right. Don't you want that too? Do you really want to experience restraint of something good and something pleasing, of something that will change your life? You should eat that fruit. What you have is not sufficient. God can't be trusted. So rather than listening to the voice of God, Adam listens to the voice of another. He enters into temptation and embraces the deception of the evil one. And for Adam and Eve both, not being delivered from the devices of the evil one leads to destruction and to damage, and to death, for them and for us. Reflecting on Eve and Adam's experience provokes a question. Whose voice are you listening to? Eve listened to the serpent. Adam listened to Eve. Neither listened to God. Are you listening to the voice of God, or are you listening to the voice of another? In 2005, The National Science Foundation published an article summarizing research on the number of thoughts and type of thoughts a human experiences each day. It's a bit of an objective picture of the type of voices we tend to hear and pay attention to. They found on average that a person experiences 12,000 to 60,000 thoughts per day. When analyzing the trajectory of those thoughts, the types of things people were giving attention to, the the researchers found that 80% were negative in nature. 80%. Now, of course, all negative thoughts aren't bad. I mean, it's good to be convicted about the seriousness of bad behavior. And that often comes in the form of negative thoughts. Don't do that. That would be a dumb decision. That action hurt and harmed others. Those negative thoughts help us grow in character and maturity. But many negative thoughts are not good. You're not good enough. You are ugly. You are stupid. You don't have what it takes. What you have is not sufficient. You need more. You are not valuable. You cannot trust others. You are wasting your time in this life. These negative thoughts of condemnation and accusation lead you to doubt your worth, to doubt God's word, to doubt his goodness, and to doubt the sufficiency of his provision. These voices are consistent with the words spoken by the evil one. In what ways, what situations do we experience those voices? One of the ways I heard in a sermon recently had to do with how we text One another. And so, if you know my wife, you know there is one word you are not allowed to text her. When she asks for something, don't respond with the word sure. Okay? She'll text, hey, handsome. That's what she calls me, handsome. Hey, handsome. Can you pick up our Walmart order? Sure. She thinks. What does that mean? Sure. Am I forcing you to do it? Fine, I'll do it myself. I'll take care of it because helping me isn't something you want to do. In a different situation, Josh, our son Josh is playing at a, at a friend's home. Hey Steve, she doesn't call my friend Steve handsome. <laughs> hey Steve, uh, can you run Josh home to our house at two? At two? Steve responds, sure. She says to me, hey, Paul, Steve doesn't want to run Josh to our house. Uh, we're being kind of a bother to him. And I ask, what, what makes you think that? And she says, because he responded, sure. This is one way we experience the voice of the evil one. My wife is certainly not the only one who hears this type of voice. 80% negative thoughts filled with false accusation and false condemnation, leading us to doubt our worth and value, leading us to doubt God's provision of people who want to help us and love us, entering into the temptation to listen to that voice results in damage and disconnection from others and destruction and death. You and I are surrounded with messages constantly communicating, you need more, What you have is not enough. Advertisements on billboards, on TV, on your phone, listening to music. One of the marks of a capitalist society, the kind we have in America, is to convince you you need more stuff. What you have is not enough. You are tempted towards greed and jealousy and envy. You see someone who has a vacation home, and if you're like me, you don't have a vacation home. You have a beat-up pop-up camper that has been raided by mice once, not once, but twice. It, it bears those beatings and those bruises and those scars and really should have been retired five years ago. And so you think, you see that person with that vacation home, and you think, what am I doing wrong? I don't have enough. I, I need more stuff. And your friend with the vacation home or maybe the nice camper invites you over to dinner and you like, I don't want to have dinner with you. I just want your stuff. I, I, I'm not good enough to be with you. You're way better than me. The voice you hear, it says, what God has provided for you, it is not sufficient. This is another way we experience the voice of the evil one. We're not being enticed to eat a literal, a literal apple, but figurative apples certainly exist. And one, one that, that we need to point out is romantic relationships. That is a kind of fruit that is so pleasing to our eye. We see the sensual experience of others on Netflix, in movies, on TV. We see how close intimate connection delivers happiness and we become discontent with what we have as a single or what we have in our current marriage. We are invited to seek more, even if it means rejecting God's word. An invitation to self-rule and reign, pursuing that romantic relationship. This is another way we experience the voice of the evil one. Entering into temptation to listen to that voice results in damage and destruction and death. The Greek word for temptation in this petition is parasmos. And that word could be translated temptation or it could be translated test. There's a distinct difference between those two. You lose your job you get a negative performance review. Your car breaks down. You have a son or a daughter rejecting and running from the Christian faith. Someone you love is experiencing a season of sorrow and sadness, maybe sickness. Someone you trust betrays and hurts you deeply. Your prayers are not answered quickly enough or in the ways you expect. An image pops up on your phone or on TV and you are invited to take a longer look. Someone gives you a glance or a gentle touch, inviting you to experience greater connection. There's an opportunity to indulge a longing for a drink or some substance to silence your sorrows. Such a trial could be a test or it could be a temptation. We often think about a test as a sort of an exam, assessing knowledge and skills. A test grades how well you do and gives you an A, a B, a C, or D. A different way to think about test. What Scripture has in mind is the process of metals becoming purified. A test like that refines. It removes impurities. It makes something stronger. A trial becomes a test when it is an opportunity for our faith to be strengthened, for impurities to be removed, for our confidence in Christ to grow. A test like that strengthens our trust in God's word, in God's goodness, and our delight in God's provision. On the other hand, a temptation, entering a temptation leads to doubt in God's word, to doubt God's goodness and to doubt God's provision. Entering into a temptation like Adam and Eve can lead to destruction and damage and death. It can lead us to disconnect and disassociate from others and from God. We are praying not that we wouldn't be tested, but that a trial wouldn't become a temptation leading to distrust. A trial wouldn't be used as a device of the evil one to distort God's word, leading to destruction and death. Listen to Professor Daryl Johnson. What does lead us not into temptation mean? The evil one seeks to turn tests into temptations. Jesus' enemy turns tests into temptations. These are events or experiences in life through which the Father intends to prove and improve our character and faith, but the evil one sneaks in and intends to destroy our character and faith. It is very subtle and unrelenting. What the Father of Jesus means as a test, the evil one seeks to turn into a temptation. So I was, I was telling a few of the men at, Fur, at First City Men's Breakfast a few weeks ago, I don't like to reach out for help. I have these thoughts, other people won't want to help me. I'm not worth time for others to invest in. I have a hard time trusting other people. I think they'll let me down. I hear and sometimes embrace the voice of the evil one. So, so a couple months ago, I reached out to some folks and asked, If I could start some type of mentoring relationship with a conversation about it, and they said they would initiate follow-up. It's weeks later, and that follow-up has not yet happened. I reached out to touch base again and silence. Now, I love these people. I'm sure there is a good explanation, but this moment for me becomes a trial, and this becomes an opportunity to enter into temptation. You're not valuable. You're not worth the investment of others. Paul, haven't you learned? You should not trust others. You should only rely on self. This trial is an opportunity for God's good design to be distorted. Praying, lead me not into temptation, but deliver me from the evil one. I'm I'm not praying to not experience that trial or that test. I am praying in the midst of a trial like that, Protect me from the strategies and tactics of the evil one. Help me to cling to you more closely. This is God's work in our lives. Deliverance from the devices of the devil. We are not asking God to remove tests and trials. He uses those things to grow us. We are asking God to protect us from entering into temptation, to doubting God's word, to doubting God's goodness, and to doubting God's provision, to not being defeated by the devices of the evil one. Jesus is is teaching his disciples to plead to experience more of God's work in our lives. And that work is this. We know in the Gospels There's a story where Jesus, like Adam and Eve, he was tempted to doubt God's word. He was tempted to doubt God's goodness. He was tempted to doubt the sufficiency of God's provision. But unlike Adam and Eve, Jesus did not enter the temptation. He defeated the tempter. And in approaching his death on the cross, while he was not delivered from experiencing death, he defeated the evil one holding the power of death. Listen to Hebrews chapter 2, verses 14 and 15. Now, since the children have flesh and blood in common, Jesus also shared in these, so that through his death, he might destroy the one holding the power of death, that is the devil, and free those who were held in slavery all their lives by the fear of death. Jesus destroyed the power of the evil one, Jesus rescued sinners like you and I when he died on the cross. That's his work, deliverance from the devices of the devil. Further, God has not left us alone in our battles with the evil one. If you are in Christ, by his spirit, he has given you new power and new desires. Here's Galatians 5, 16 through 17. I say then, walk by the spirit and you will certainly not carry out the desire of the flesh. This is our sinful nature. For the flesh desires what is against the spirit, and the spirit desires what is against the flesh. Those are opposed to each other so that you don't do what you want. There is a war we experience against evil that doesn't simply happen in the world outside of us. It happens in the world inside of us. Internal voices inviting us to embrace Pride and autonomy, arrogance and self sufficiency, to be like God. Or internal voices accusing and condemning, deceiving us of our value and worth. God has given us his spirit to embrace new desires and new longings. That's his work, deliverance from the devices of the devil. When we pray, lead us not into temptation. But deliver us from evil, we are declaring the source of our rescue and deliverance from evil is not self. We are looking up to God for ultimate deliverance and rescue. We are praying to experience more of his work and more of his power. Because while the evil one's ability to destroy has been defeated, in Christ you have been delivered from that, that is not true of his ability to distort. The evil one still fights. The evil one still seeks to devour. Here's 1 Peter 5.8. Be sober-minded. Be alert. Your adversary, the devil, is prowling around like a roaring lion looking for anyone he can devour. The evil one continues to cause hurt and harm. The, The devil declares distortions that undermine trust in God's word. Undermine trust in God's goodness. And, and trust in God, the sufficiency of God's provision. You can't trust God. God is not good. God does not want to delight in you. You need to be like God. Praying this petition as, as opposed to the others, it, it can be a, a bit harder to personalize and put into our own words. Like I said earlier, we don't know what to do with the devil. And we struggle as we battle with sin to to surrender self-reliance and self-sufficiency. But praying this petition is critical. Here's how Martin Luther guides us. Forgive us debts has to do with reviewing the day. I mean, it's the petition that we personalize at the end of the day as we are confronted and reflect on our sin and lead us not into temptation is what we pray at the beginning of the day. It's what we need to pray for knowing the battles we will experience with our thoughts and desires, the battles that will occur as we encounter external voices and images, the trials that will become tests, and the, the trials that are opportunities to enter into temptation. When we pray, lead us not into temptation, deliver us from the evil one, we are not dismissing our responsibility for when we enter into partnership with the deceptions of Satan. But we are affirming. We need to look to God for our ultimate deliverance and rescue. We need his protection. As we conclude, I want to I speak to two different types of people that may be in the room this morning. First, many of you you would say, you know, you need deliverance from the devices of the devil. You are confronted with ugly thoughts and challenging voices moments by moment, mom- moment by moment throughout your day. Thoughts you should numb the pain you experience. Thoughts everyone looks down on you. Thoughts your life has little value and no one would really miss you if you were gone. This petition is declaring to you, your relationship with God is not rooted in having all your anxieties and all your fears and all your doubts resolved. Your relationship with God is not rooted in your strength nor your perfection. Your relationship with God is rooted in a cry of dependence to the the deliverer who delivers his people from the devices of the devil. Which brings me to the second group. There are others of us who tend to embrace the role of hero. We are prone to to enter into a temptation, to accept an invitation to self-sufficiency and self-reliance in our struggle with sin. The weight of being the hero It will crush you. That is not your burden to bear. Our ability to rationalize, our ability to to be strong, it will not deliver us. None of us, none of us is so great that we can deliver ourselves. Jesus is inviting you to a cry of dependence to surrender self-sufficiency and self-reliance, to be dependent on the deliverer who delivers his people from the devices of the devil. Jesus is not teaching us to plead to never experience trials and tests. Those are what he uses to grow us. He's teaching us in the midst of trial and tests to cry out to God that we would experience the freedom he gives. We would experience his strength. We would experience his endurance and and perseverance rooted in him. That we would experience the power of God in in the daily battle with the enemy, and we would rest and find strength in his work, his victory over the enemy. Let's pray for that power and strength.